The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to thank the men and women serving in our military who are tuning into the program today. Thank you for your service and for being with us again. My guest this hour is our nation's 15th chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Ms. Allison McFarland. She'll be joining us in just a minute to give us a much-needed update on Fukushima and the status of a central repository for nuclear waste in the United States, as well as plans to move towards smaller, more efficient nuclear reactors next year. But before she joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about her background. Allison McFarland earned her undergraduate degree in geological sciences from the University of Rochester and her Ph.D. in geology from MIT. She held various fellowships at Radcliffe College, MIT, Stanford, and Harvard, and was also a MacArthur Foundation Fellow in International Peace and Security. While at Harvard, McFarland was involved in the disposal of plutonium following the Cold War. Between 2003 and 2004, McFarland taught her sciences and international affairs on the faculty of Georgia Tech University. But as time passed, McFarland found herself becoming increasingly worried that important geological data was not pl- playing the role it should in the formation of public policy, particularly when it came to public safety issues such as the long-term storage of nuclear waste. In 2006, she co-edited a revealing book titled Uncertainty Underground, Yucca Mountain and the Nation's High-Level Nuclear Waste, which brought attention to the unresolved technical issues associated with the proposed Central Waste Repository in Nevada. McFarlane also taught at George Mason University and from 2010 to 2012 served on the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future. And it is on this commission that McFarlane's background in science, Knowledge of security issues and her love for nature shined. In 2012, McFarland was sworn in as the chairman of the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and she was reconfirmed this year for another five-year term. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report a leader who you are likely to hear a lot more about in the coming year, Miss Allison McFarland. Thank you for joining us, Miss McFarland. Thank you. As you know, uh, the media has a short memory and. Sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes it's it's not so good. So I thought a good place to open today's program might be to ask you to give us an update on ground conditions in Fukushima. Well, um, I was in Japan very recently, but I, I uh, haven't been to Fukushima for about a year. But they are in the process of trying to decommission the site. It's going to be a very long-term process because they've got a quite a big mess there to clean up. Um, but they're working through it very diligently. 
Um, they have just started moving spent nuclear fuel from the spent fuel pool at the Unit 4 reactor, um, and that's a, a, a huge task. They had to take the, the top off of the building. That, there was an explosion in that building that sort of damaged the top and, and dropped debris into the pool, and they've taken, you know, they built a new top for the building, and they're in the process of moving the fuel, and uh, it's... Um, it's a fascinating, but it's a large undertaking. And they're also dealing with uh, what probably people have heard a lot about is contaminated water. Um, and that's a big, complex problem, but they, uh, they are working on it. How do, what do we know about the contamination of the water? So let's take both uh, sides of that, the seawater versus the ground table. Right. So essentially, the seawater is being contaminated by water that's coming from a number of sources. Uh, some is the, the water that's groundwater that's been contaminated. Some is water that was in trenches that was contaminated during the accident. Um, and those are the major sources of water, of the contamination. The problem is the water table at the site is very high. And so you have groundwater basically seeping into the basements of the uh, damaged reactor buildings. Mm-hmm. And they're having to extract about 400 tons of water a day from those ground, from those um, damaged reactor buildings and <clears throat> try to clean it up. And where and, does that water go if it's contaminated? Right? Does it go yeah. back into the ocean again and then come back no, in? <laughs> no, no, they're putting it in large tanks. Uh, so they, the site is, is completely chock-a-block with large tanks of contaminated water. And where ultimately does that contaminated water go? Where do they put it? Excellent question. They they haven't made any final decisions on that. This is a a controversial issue in Japan. Um, the as I understand it, the fishermen in the area are very concerned about having contaminated water released, and um, at the same time, they've got this this situation where they are going to run out of room one day to store the water. So this is a tough decision that the, the regulator in Japan is going to have to help the, uh, the licensee, which is TEPCO, take. So uh, did you say 400 tons of water a day, they're contaminated water a day that they're t- pumping out and storing somewhere? That, that's correct. So where, does, where are they storing it? In these really large tanks that they built around the site. Wow. That, yeah, that, that this is. I, I mean, just hearing the number is overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a, an amazing situation there. You know, you when you go visit, and I haven't visited recently. As I said, I was there last year, but you know, a lot of the area is evacuated still, and so you see these what were clearly vibrant villages uh, now, ghost towns. Where the weeds are taking over, and uh, and the site itself is um, it's. It's very busy. There's lots of there are lots of workers there working on the the site, but um, there's still there's still debris from the tsunami spread around the site. It's uh, this has been a really concentrated effort there. Mm-hmm. And as we know, when you start taking that kind of water out of the ground, uh, then you uh, open the door for seawater to come in. Well, they they don't have that problem yet. Mm. Um, so you know that. And part of the site, I suppose, in the future, that potentially could be an issue, but that's not the issue right now. Right. So it, it hasn't gotten to that level again, but you take enough out of the ground and uh, you have seawater infiltration and then you have uh, really a lot of damage to any possibility of being able to grow anything 
in the area. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of it's very daunting Um, for for people on the West Coast in the United States. Is there any ongoing danger uh, of contamination from air or let's say the ocean? Well, let me first say that when the the accident happened, that was when you had the largest release of radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's any kind of radiation that's going into the, the sea right now is, is much, much, much less than what was released during the accident. So people have to keep that in mind. In terms of the West Coast, let me first say that the NRC isn't the, the agency really that's monitoring the situation as much as the Environmental Protection Agency and the Fish and Wildlife Agency. So those are the relevant agencies. But nonetheless, we do keep an eye on it and we try to understand a little bit about what's going on. And what I understand is that the most conservative models out there, because there is radiation that was you know, released during the accident mm-hmm. that went into the ocean, and that radiation is moving towards the West Coast, that contaminated water, whatever. Um, and the models that show that it will probably arrive sometime in 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. and the most conservative models, in other words, the ones that would show the highest values of radiation reaching the West Coast, suggest that the radi- any radiation reaching the West Coast would be two orders of magnitude, 100 times less than the drinking water standard for radiation. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so there's really nothing to be concerned at because we're talking about worst-case scenario. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. and, and even if you could drink that water, mm-hmm. you would be allowed to drink it because it's 100 times less than the, the, uh, the, the standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, that's important, I think, for our listeners that are on the West Coast that, uh, you know, have an ongoing concern about what, radi- what kind of levels of radiation are going to reach them. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, I tell people, look, if when, when you, every time you leave your house and stand out in the sun, you're getting radiation. So, uh, and and uh, it's going to be a lot more than what you're going to see from Fukushima. Now we have to take our first commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk about just where all this nuclear waste that we're generating is going to go. To uh, you're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data? and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data, and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile, and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM Big Data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. The best gifts I have ever received have been books. 
They're not expensive and they don't use electricity, but they do offer hours of enjoyment. So do I have good news for you? The new paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle is available in bookstores everywhere, including airports across the country. This is the only book to expose just how complicated our lives and governance has become. It not only explains the reasons for gridlock, but it also provides the answers. So pick up the new paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle for a friend. The book Richard Branson says is a must read. And while you're at it, grab a copy for yourself. You'll be happy you did. Okay, gang. So, chances are there'll never be an emergency ever, ever again. Mm -hmm. But, just in case, let's talk about a plan. Okay. So, who's going to do what? Anyone? Uh... Yeah, okay, perfect. We'll figure it out as we go. So, who is going to grab the go bag? What's a go bag? It is a bag we do not have that is filled with things we really, really need in an emergency. Guess we won't have to worry about it then. Ah, good point. So, uh, we all know who to call if something happens then, right? I'd have to call Jill, Devin, Melissa, Karen, and... Bruce. And I will try to call all of you, but Greg doesn't have a cell phone. Dad's phone will have a dead battery. No doubt. And Julie will be on the phone with Jill, Devin, Melissa, Karen, and Bruce. Well, this is great. <laughs> I am so glad that we don't have a plan. I know. Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov kids for tips and information. A public service announcement brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that, overall, you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Got a comment or a question? Visit Rebecca Costa's comments page at RebeccaCosta.com. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is the chairman of the NRC, Miss Allison McFarlane. And one of the areas that you focused on has been to make sure that we extract the right lessons from disasters such as Chernobyl and Fukushima. And uh, one of the changes was to make sure that our plants were capable of handling what you called beyond design events, which I believe means that they would have uh, backup flood-proof generators, hardened vent systems, and so on. Is that right? Yes. Um, when we talk about beyond design, you know, most of our plants are what, what they have a 25, 30-year lifespan and many of them are sort of coming to the end of their life and we've sort of expanded extended that lifespan as long as we can by having them make upgrades what's the status of decommissioning in the united states well first let me say that um the 
plants are licensed initially for a 40-year lifetime, and a number, actually I think it's around 73, have actually been issued license extensions for another 20 years. Mm-hmm. So, um, and so, they do that through upgrading, uh, you know, new safety systems. Uh, they they actually have an, have to uh, in, initiate an aging management program, mm-hmm. so that they have to look at um, keep an eye on some of these larger systems, the building structures, the piping, the the um, electrical wiring, that kind of thing. So they they have additional requirements if they want to operate beyond forty years. So explain to our audience a little bit, what does Beyond Design events mean? These are events that um, are, you know, extreme events. Uh, so what, what Fukushima experienced was a Beyond Design event. They had never thought that they would uh, be in a situation where more than one plant would melt down at the same time, mm-hmm. where they would lose off-site power and not have any uh, backup diesel generators available to them. They were in in very extreme situations. And so we've tried to take lessons from this so that our plants will never be in such a situation. And I have to say that around the world, other countries with uh, robust nuclear power um, programs also came to the same conclusion. Right. Well, it, it, the thing is that we're constantly discovering new information, and that has to be factored into where to build and how to operate nuclear facilities and where and how to store live waste. And And, and let's take as an example that we now know uh, that the new Madrid fault zone, for example, in the Midwest and South is a lot more dangerous than we thought. So mm-hmm. when it comes to safety standards, You've got to be re- reacting constantly to all this new information. I mean, isn't this just a, a, a moving target? It, it is to a degree. I mean, the uh, the engineer's mantra is to use operating experience and have that inform any changes that you might want. And um, as a geologist myself, you know, there's also the, the, the natural systems piece of this. And you're right that as time goes on, we, we discover more about how uh, the earth works. And in the case of um, reactors in the U.S., we have required them to reevaluate their seismic hazard and their flooding hazard. So how often do they have to reevaluate? Well, this is the first time in, in, in quite a while that they've, they've had to reevaluate this. But we, we actually have as part of um, one of the uh, activities uh, post-Fukushima is to consider whether we should actually require plants to reevaluate their seismic hazard every 10 years. Yeah, even 10 years seems really like a long time, but then when you consider how long it takes to build one, uh, uh, and, and maybe I don't have this right, but for how long it takes to build them, whatever design you start with is probably not the design you're going to end up with, right? Well, that was true in the past, actually. But not so that much is, now, huh? Not now. Now we license plants differently. So in the past, we used to issue a construction license and then an operating license. And the plant would be sort of, in some senses, designed along the way as it was constructed. Now, because uh, in part because the industry wanted to streamline this process and not have to go through two licensing uh, periods, we uh, certify the design of the plant. And this is easier to do now because most of the new designs are um, a modular style. And uh, and so 
we certify the design, and now the plant is issued one license, a construction and operating license, and they have to build exactly what's in the design. So now let's move on to uh, something that I'm always concerned about, which is all these byproducts that these reactors create, this live radioactive waste. Uh, can you give us an update on what's happening with Yucca Mountain? Well, um, there was a court decision this summer that, um, that asked us to continue the licensing process. The licensing process had been halted in 2010 after the Department of Energy had pulled the license application from us. Um, but uh, the court decided that we needed to continue the licensing process and we needed to use the amount of, of money we had uh, still available to do that. So we're in the process of going forward and doing that. But that won't bring us to the end of the licensing process. We just have $11 million mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to do this. And it'll probably take us about halfway through. So in the interim, where is the nuclear waste being stored? It's being stored at the reactors. And it's, re- it's stored in either spent fuel pools or in dry casks. So is that in uh, 65 different sites? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Not so, all the sites have dry casks, but the majority of them do. So that kind of, you know, brings me to a question that I have is, is that a better strategy to have uh, the local sites be storing their lo- nuclear waste or do we need to move toward one centralized repository? I have mixed feelings about both. Well, um, putting on my blue ribbon commission hat, <laughs> okay. I would I would say that, um, you know, there's a, there's basically global consensus among folks who think about this, that the, the ultimate solution for high-level nuclear waste and spent nuclear fuel is to put it in some kind of mined geologic repository, mm-hmm. some kind of deep geologic repository, I should say. A centralized repository. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There may, you may need more than one. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a, a, a large nuclear reactor program, so we may need more than one. Right. But, um, but some kind of, of repository in the the thinking is that if you leave it above ground, certainly at some point in time in the future, somebody's going to stop watching it and it will eventually pose a threat. Um, you know, it'll, it, it'll degrade. Right. Plus, um, it's a lot harder to keep track of 65 different or even if it's 60 different facilities, uh, you know, taking care of their nuclear waste than it is having them all bring it to yeah. one or two locations. But uh, let me emphasize that the waste we're at the reactors right now is, mm-hmm. is quite safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I didn't mean to imply that there was any danger. I'm just thinking from a security standpoint, even protecting 60 locations versus a couple uh, would probably be an easier task, would it? Yeah, and a cheaper one. And a cheaper one. Which is what the Blue Ribbon Commission pointed out. Yeah, that's, that's right. I have to remember that uh, when it comes to the government, cheaper is good. Efficiency well, is a good thing. <laughs> the, 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 this is the, you know, the, these sites are, are owned by different uh, right. utility companies. So. Right, right. All right. Well, we have to take another uh, short break, but we will be right back with Allison McFarlane after these important messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. 
Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. This is the story of Daniel, who was born two months early. He weighed one pound, seven ounces. His lungs weren't ready. His heart wasn't ready. His brain wasn't ready. At the hospital, the nurses said Daniel was a fighter, and they would do all they could to help him. The doctor said even with the best care, Daniel may never walk. He may never see. He may never learn. Daniel's parents spent night after night at the hospital, watching his every breath, holding his tiny hands, and looking for signs that he was growing stronger. At home, his parents looked around Daniel's empty nursery, at the quiet toys and the still rocker, and they hoped that one day they could sit in that rocking chair and tell this story to their very healthy son. Daniel's is just one of the more than 500,000 stories of babies born prematurely last year, but there's hope for a happy ending. The March of Dimes is funding the research and programs to stop premature birth. You can help bring more babies home healthy. Learn how at marchofdimes.com. Working together for stronger, healthier babies. Owning a home is the American dream, but today's economy is challenging. Have you fallen behind on your mortgage payments? Many homeowners facing financial difficulty often feel lost and don't know where to turn for help. The airwaves are filled with offers of fast and simple relief. However, many find these offers often lead to damaged credit, higher debt, and ultimately the loss of one's home. If it seems like there's no way out, know there is legitimate help available. The National Foundation for Credit Counseling is a nonprofit organization that has provided answers and concrete solutions to consumers in situations just like yours for more than 60 years. Our certified housing specialists will work with you to review your finances and create a custom plan that's right for your specific situation. NFCC member agencies provide free and affordable help and meet U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development standards. Call 866-687-6322 or visit mortgagehelpnow.org. The next episode of Recipes for Disaster. So we've got our neighbor Paul coming over tonight for a barbecue, which is why I prepared a delicious lemon rosemary steak marinade for my special collection of old family recipes. To make sure the steaks are extra, extra, extra tender, I left them marinating out on the counter overnight, just like Nana used to. Maria may mean well, but without food safety, it never ends well. Always thaw or marinate foods in the refrigerator at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Or you could make your friends and family really sick. Maria's neighbor Paul didn't think twice about the steak he ate until he was presenting his company's financial forecast to the board. That's when a sudden bout of food poisoning made it explicitly clear that profits weren't the only thing on the rise. Watch Recipes for Disaster at foodsafety.gov. You'll learn the right steps as Maria does everything wrong. Brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. Take a moment to see Rebecca's video pick of the week. Go to YouTube and subscribe to the Rebecca Costa YouTube channel. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa. And if you're just joining us, my guest today is Chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Allison McFarland. And before the break, we were talking about the status of Yucca Mountain and the consensus that when it comes to storing and managing nuclear waste, central repositories are more efficient than local storage at reactor sites. Now, now we're uh, seeing a move towards smaller modular reactors, uh, which I understand we're getting ready to license in 2014. So uh, maybe you could explain to us why smaller reactors are a better idea than these larger plants. Well, they're not necessarily a better idea. They're just different. The larger plants, um, you know, are are often on the order of 1,000 megawatts. Um, they can produce a lot of, of baseload power. The, the smaller plants, um, if they come to pass, uh, could... Um, service smaller locations, you know, you have a remote town or or something like that. Um, They could uh, sort of take the place of some natural gas plants, which are on much smaller than nuclear plants. And uh, there's also potentially a big uh, foreign market for these plants because a number of um, developing countries, developed countries have small electrical grids and your grid size needs to be about 10 times larger than your largest plant that you put on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are they quicker to build? Uh, I don't know. We will see. <laughs> <laughs> none has been built yet. Uh, well, so. none, of, none of these are very quick to build. I, sh- I should say they're not going to happen overnight. Uh, and you're getting, uh, are we getting ready to license one potentially in next year? Is that right? We're, we expect a design certification application from two of them next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and we'll see what happens. We'll see uh, what the, you know, what what the application looks like. And, um, you know, I, th- I think it's an interesting development. And uh, but we'll see, you know, uh, whether they whether they take off or not. Now, do we know where the locations will be right now? One, uh, there's a Westinghouse design that we're expecting in and they've been working with uh, Ammer in Missouri mm-hmm. uh, for a uh, and we're, we're expecting a uh, combined operating license application from them the following year. And the other one uh, is is a Babcock and Wilcox design, and uh, they've been working with the Tennessee Valley Authority. I see. So, so uh, the nuclear waste produced by the modular uh, and smaller reactors uh, will that also be dealt with locally? I guess yeah, so, until, because we don't yeah. we don't have a central repository, right? Until we have a national policy, right? You know, so we when, have a national are... policy until until we have you know some. We know where we're going, yeah. Right. When will we know where we're going? <laughs> I don't know. No crystal No crystal ball, ball there? Yeah, yeah. It's not, <laughs> it's not the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's uh, job to set national policy on right. the back end of the fuel cycle. That's the job of the administration and Congress. Right, right. And, uh, you know, interestingly enough, uh, people confuse the NRC with actually setting policy. I think that goes on every single day. I get emails from people and I go, no, they're oversight. They're licensing and oversight. Uh, But, you know, it's the same reason that they blame the president for uh, budgets. And I go, no, the Congress cancels the budget. But uh, people, we just get, we get our wires crossed. Those cells must be parked touching each other in our head or something. Uh-huh. So that's that's the only thing I can think of. Um, you know, interestingly enough, in a speech last month, uh, you spoke about something called uh, accident sequence precursors. Now, I was fascinated by this because these are uh, smaller failures 
which may have the potential to trigger larger events. And, and you pointed out that there were seven precursor events which occurred in the two years between 2010 and 12, and that this was troubling because in the previous six years, we, we didn't have any such events. And you attributed most of these failures to component failures or electrical problems. Or uh, and it, In your view, is this a byproduct of our aging infrastructure uh, or is this a situation where we haven't gotten on top of corrective action fast enough? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, the jury's out on that. Um, I don't know if there's a, you know, you can direct, have a direct cause because, you know, some of these issues come up over time um, and, you know, we'll see, we'll see sort of a, a trend and then, and then it'll, it'll wane and then, and then you might see a trend again. So Sure, um, but when we go from zero in six years to seven in two years, I mean, you know, you, you have to, uh, if your job is oversight, you got to feel a little bit uncomfortable about it. Well, that's why we bring it to the attention of the industry and uh, we give it more attention ourselves and we, you know, we're definitely watching this. Right, right. Well, one of the things that you've brought to the uh, NRC since becoming chairman is this idea of preemption. Uh, you often talk about getting on top of these problems before they become an issue. And we're such a reactive culture. It's really hard to get people to pay attention when we're talking about heading off danger before it's upon us. So uh, how have you been successful? I mean, especially in an environment in D.C. that's pretty reactive. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're still uh, somewhat reactive. But um, when we notice things at reactors and, and, you know, I think folks should understand that we have resident inspectors. At each reactor, there are at least two resident inspectors at each at each uh, nuclear power plant. And they are all always inspecting. <laughs> they're, you know, inspecting equipment. They're watching the operators. Um, they're looking at the safety culture. And so we're always looking at things and making sure that even the small issues are paid attention to. And it always feels that those people who are trying to preempt and head off danger, um, they don't get as much attention. <laughs> you know, even those departments that perform oversight don't seem to get as much attention as those that are constantly reacting to, if, you know, their hair on fire. Right. Uh, and, and we have such a culture like that uh, in governance right now. Um, not only are you uh, trying to move us more toward looking down the road further, um, many leaders have commented on your collaborative leadership style and it's and it, which is something a little new for the NRC, and they've attributed that to your working in academia. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah, and academia academia is not very hierarchical, and uh, and you have to work with your colleagues, and, um, and that's how academic departments tend to tend to go. And the most successful are those where the chair of the department walks around and gets the views of everybody, and so uh, I try to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, as a geologist, what is it like working with physicists? <laughs> well, they're mostly engineers, <laughs> and we have a fair number of lawyers too. <laughs> so you have engineers, physicists, and lawyers. Yeah. Uh, well, that's different from academia. That's a different environment. Those folks aren't led easily. <laughs> right. I know. I, I've been working in Silicon Valley for twenty five years with engineers and lawyers and physicists. Uh-huh. Same, same crowd and uh, not not easy. I mean, you can talk about collaboration. So what's the secret here? Uh, you know, I think it's important to be open-minded um, to uh, 
and encourage a culture where a variety of views are uh, sought on on all issues. You know, you have to make sure you understand the the full range of views on a particular issue, and, and that's what I try to do. And I try to um, talk to my colleagues and and uh, seek their counsel on 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 issues as well, and understand their their viewpoints. Um, and I, you know, uh, we have a great staff. Uh, they do excellent work, and uh, so I rely on them as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly think that um, your background in science has uh, been a huge, uh, made a huge contribution and a, and a significant difference uh, when you have a fellow scientist who has, and particularly in the geological sciences, which is a hard science, um, uh, I think it's got to make a big difference in dealing with engineers and scientists. I didn't have that strong of a scientific background, so they just mowed me right over. Because uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't go toe to toe, they're going to figure that out really fast, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, have you found uh, being a female leader in the NRC uh, to be challenging in any way, or is this just straight science? Uh, you know, I think there are... Um I haven't had any personal problems with it, but um, I certainly am encouraging the leadership at the agency to uh, get more women in management positions. Yeah, get a couple of gals in there, uh, just so you have feel a little camaraderie in every meeting. All right, well, we have to take our last break, but stay right where you are. Uh, We'll be right back with Allison McFarlane. You're listening to the Costa Report. Fifty years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. But something you may not know is that Dr. King was represented by the world's foremost speaking agency, the American Program Bureau. The American Program Bureau has a courageous history of representing luminaries, entertainers, and motivators from all backgrounds. From Ronald Reagan, Richard Branson, and Mikhail Gorbachev, to John Stewart, Michael Douglas, and Desmond Tutu. From A-list celebrities to best-selling authors, cutting-edge business leaders, and the greatest minds in academia, the American American Program Bureau has speakers to fit every venue and every budget. When corporations, conferences, schools, and community organizations need an expert speaker, they turn to the American Program Bureau to help them craft an event that will be remembered long afterwards. To inquire about a speaker for your next engagement, contact the American Program Bureau at 800-225-4575 or visit our website at apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. Well, the holidays are upon us, and that means the festivities are officially underway. So here's a tip guaranteed to make a splash at every party and put a smile on every hostess. Pick up a bottle of Caraccioli Pinot Noir Chardonnay Brut or Brut Rosé. Grown, perfected, and bottled by the Caraccioli family, these old-school premium wines are one of the best-kept secrets among wine aficionados. But trust me, the secret's getting out fast. So grab a bottle while these wines are still affordable. Go to CaracciolieCellars.com or stop by their tasting room on Dolores and Ocean Avenue in downtown Carmel and pick up a bottle of Caraccioli premium wines and bring a little bling to the holidays.
driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with a text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel. And a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. All right. I know this isn't any fun to talk about, but we should. So, who's going to do what? Flashlights? Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Batteries? Dead. Great. Emergency supply kits? Not packed. What about blankets? We have an old towel. Good enough. Cell phones? May not work. Uh, Emergency water? Not a drop. And what about food? Nope. Perfect. We all know where we're meeting if we're separated, yeah? The library! Aunt Joan's house. The bus stop. Great. And I'll be waiting here wondering where you all are. Sounds like we don't have a plan. Who's up for mini golf? Winging it is not an emergency plan. Make sure your kids know what to do during an emergency. Who to call, where to meet, what to pack. Visit ready.gov slash kids for tips and information. A public service announcement brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Join Rebecca Costa right now on Facebook. Search facebook.com forward slash Rebecca Costa. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Chairman of the NRC, Allison McFarlane. Um, I wondered if you could uh, take a moment to address the public's concern about the effects that uh, the government shutdown and sequestration has on the NRC. Well, it did affect us. Um, we were very fortunate. We didn't have to shut down for two plus weeks like many other agencies did because we had some carryover funds, but we did shut down for four days and we spent an awful lot of time planning for the shutdown and then planning for uh, our, our startup again. And over all that time and the time lost, we estimate that uh, we, we lost more than $10 million in productivity. $10 million in productivity. Yeah. Uh, now, when you say carryover funds, what, what what does that mean? What you you had some side budget that you could no, use? No, no, to- it's just it's money that we'd taken in that that hadn't uh, we hadn't we hadn't yet spent, and so we had some extra money that um, was uh, they call it uh, no year money <laughs> um, that we could that we could uh, we could put towards keeping us open and operating. Now, my mom but, used uh, to keep that money in a cookie jar. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So you had cookie jar money that we kept did. the NRC open. Right. Okay. Fortunately. And, uh, now, and now our, let's say you didn't have that. By circumstance, you didn't happen to have that money. What would have happened? Then we would have had to shut down earlier. But let me, let me be clear about something. Mm-hmm. The, the safety mission of the agency was never compromised. We are resident inspectors stayed at the plants. They stayed on duty. They were continuing to inspect the whole time during the shutdown. Our uh, folks in the operations facility, all the folks who need to be responsive to any kind of um, uh, public health emergency were were ready to go, um, and everybody else was on standby in case something happened. 
So is the NRC protected from sequestration? So no. like our like some of our military no, is? we're affected by sequestration. I think last year it was uh, we took a fifty two million dollar hit in our budget from sequestration. Okay, so has there been since the government shutdown? Has there been any discussion to to call the NRC out and and separate it from any impact that that uh, a government shutdown would have? Uh, nope, <laughs> not that I know of. Oh, okay, so there's going to be a lot of people sending me emails about where to who to write to. <laughs> write, write to your congressman. <laughs> uh, write to your congressman and tell him immediately that uh, you don't want the NRC to be affected by any government shutdowns or sequestration. I, I think that would be a good idea. Yeah, that seems pretty basic. Give you another few pieces of information. Our agency is a ninety percent fee recoverable agency. So uh, we collect fees from our licensees to yes. oversee them, uh-huh. uh, and then we deposit those fees in the Treasury, and then Congress appropriates our money, which is how we're affected by sequestration and government shutdowns, etc. Well, maybe we should flip it around. You collect the money, and then give it to con- yeah, then then and and then uh, you know hold off what you need and only give the balance to Congress. Uh-huh. <laughs> how, how, about, how about if we do it that way? You give them whatever's left over. <laughs> well, Congress needs to have their part in this, too. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I understand that. Um, you know, uh, fr- from a, a nuclear oversight and from the perspective of a geologist and scientist, I, I understand that when you became a chairman, you, you were surprised to learn that every facility has two resident inspectors on site. So what other things might the public not be aware of or they have uh, really large misperceptions about uh, and that need to be corrected when it comes to nuclear power? Well, I don't know about misperception, but I think, um, you know, what the, the job of the NRC is not just to regulate nuclear power plants. We also regulate nuclear materials. Yes. And uh, we do this either through the states, and 37 states are, have agreements with the, with the NRC. We, they follow, you know, our guidelines and they, and they enforce regulations. Um, but we oversee 20,000 um, materials licensees. You know, these are hospitals that use materials, uh, other industries that use radioactive materials. So, uh, so we have a, a substantial amount of work that's outside of the the power reactor industry as well. And and how about military nuclear materials? Does that fall under your jurisdiction as well? Uh, some does and mm-hmm. some doesn't. So, um, but we certainly we certainly uh, talk to the the military folks uh, and, and they aware of things. I should say we also have an international piece uh, to to what we do. You know, we we engage with um, other uh, regulators from other countries. Uh, we collaborate on things. Uh, we provide assistance to other countries, uh, help regulators in other countries. Um, and, and that's a, an important part of what we do as well. So do you ever have times where you get together with the other regulators and overseers in other countries and, uh, and you see that they're headed down a road that just is going to be a disaster and you, and you go home and you can't sleep at night. You say, <laughs> I've got no power over that country, but that's just not the way to go. Well, I don't know about not sleeping at night, but <laughs> um, 
Well, no, I mean not sleeping at night without pharmaceuticals. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying. I mean, I, I would be terrified. I, I actually wouldn't want global responsibility be, because, you know, not every country is going to be as sensitive to the in, to environmental issues as we are here in the United States. Um, yeah, you know, the other countries are sovereign nations. They make their own decisions. But I think it's good to, to stay in touch with them. And uh, it's important for us to do that yeah and i i explain to people that when it comes to things like nuclear waste if somebody decides they're going to dump it into the ocean uh, off their coast it's going to affect everyone i mean it's really these uh country borders it's one of those things like climate change that doesn't make any sense to have only a domestic policy you really do have to engage with the global community or it, it becomes nonsensical right Right. I mean, if Canada or Mexico decided to build all their nuclear waste sites along the border with the United States, uh, what would we do? <laughs> uh, oh, we should certainly keep up a, an open dialogue. Uh, a- absolutely. That's true. And, and before we let you go, where can listeners go today to get updates on uh, projects which might be planned in their area or even to ask questions? Well, you can always go to our website, www.nrc.gov, and uh, it has a wealth of information on it. All right. And uh, do you have do you do any kind of newsletter or things that people can subscribe to? Uh, We send out blogs and we also um, tweet information. So folks are welcome to to check out our blogs and sign up for tweets. They can sign up for tweets. Okay. well, that is our program for today. But uh, before we say goodbye, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Ms. McFarland. thank, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. If your station is leaving us after this hour and you have a question or a comment to make about today's program, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or send me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and let me know what you thought about our conversation with Allison McFarland today. And if you missed the full interview with McFarlane or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. And I also want to take a moment to thank listeners who put the Watchman's Rattle on their Christmas list this year, and especially those of you who ordered autographed copies from our website. We're shipping those orders out just as as fast as our elves can do it, (laughs) And, and there's still time, so if you waited until the last minute, and I know there's some of you out there, and I, I, I'm guilty as charged. I'm one of them myself. You know, Take advantage of our free holiday shipping and go to RebeccaCosta.com and order the Watchman's Rattle. It, it's quick and it's easy to order a book with a customized dedication to someone that you love. And, and think about it. I mean, who wouldn't appreciate a book signed and inscribed by the author just to them? Uh, forget the monogram sweater. Order a custom dedicated book. Uh, all you have to do is go to the uh, go to our website, the, the RebeccaCosta.com website, and, and you want to know the good news? 100%, not 50, not 60, not 70, 100% of the proceeds from the book go toward keeping quality, partisan-free programming on the air. Programs like the one you just heard today and like you hear 52 times a year on this show. Now, I know you want the media to have more integrity. I hear from you every day. You say you want less partisan bickering, more quality content. And this is one of the easiest ways to make that possible. With your support, we've become the fastest growing news program in the country. So I hope you'll take a moment right now. Go to RebeccaCosta.com. 
and behalf of all the staff here at the Costa Report, we thank you in advance for showing your concern about what is on the air. My guest next week is Martin Spinelli, author of After the Crash. And I'm going to give our audience fair warning. Have your box of Kleenex handy because Spinelli will be with us to put a human face on the growing epidemic of distracted driving. This is a story you're not going to want to miss, and I know that you're going to find it as moving as I did. Don't miss father, hero, lecturer, and author Martin Spinelli. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio following these messages. You're listening to The Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM big data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. Are you living paycheck to paycheck? Are your credit cards maxed out? Not paying some bills so you can take care of others? Or are you behind on the rent or utility bills? There is no better time than now to get your finances in order. The National Foundation for Credit Counseling, a nonprofit organization, offers a number of steps you can take to get yourself on the way to living debt-free. Track your spending for one month and report all your expenses, what kind and how much you spent. Use that to figure out where you can trim the fat. Look for low-cost alternatives to reduce expenses. Pack your lunch instead of buying it. Go to the library instead of the bookstore. When your credit card bills arrive, pay more and pay extra, exceeding the minimum payment. For more tips on how to recover from debt or get help in developing a budget, contact the NFCC to reach a certified counselor at 1-800-388-2227 or visit debtadvice.org. That's 1-800-388-2227 or visit debtadvice.org. A public service message from the NFCC. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.